Hey everybody, hope you are having a great afternoon. I was trying to give a little bit more time for people to arrive. This is a massive class today. I am gonna take questions as I go and I'll try to get to as many of them as I can. But as always, you can feel free to reach out to me after this webinar to discuss any specific questions that you have. We had an amazing uh, class schedule really set for the rest of this year. And I don't, few of you guys know, I got pretty sick. So if I cough while I'm doing this, I'm really sorry, but we did push everything back a few weeks. So we've got 15 classes in the course of the next three to four months. And we're gonna try to hit a bunch of topics because there has been so many changes in the industry and in rules and things coming down from the national level. And I'm gonna talk about how some of those integrate with the state changes today. But we're also going to have a large focus over the next couple of months on calculating returns. And why is that? Number one, we are seeing more and more people who are not taking into consideration equity when processing and running your returns. And that's really important that you are looking at all asset or value or cash you have in a deal because a lot of us who've been sitting on property for many years with the crazy numbers that Dallas and Houston and other major markets here are having, the amount of equity we're sitting on really drops those returns. So I don't know if you saw some of the articles we've been sharing and posting, but they are calling and suspecting for more than 19% appreciation in Dallas, for example, in the DFW area next year. Now, do we have crystal balls? Of course not. We don't really know what's coming. What we know is that the market has been crazy and even in off season, it's still crazy. And so it's gonna be very interesting to see what happens as the market continues to have all of these corporate relocations coming and we are actively watching what's happening around the country and things like the recall of Newsom and, and different things that are happening in other states that are having what we would call a mass exodus right now and how that is piggybacking and affecting the already heightened growth and corporate relocations in our market. So we're gonna do a series of different things. So October 12th, we're gonna do a webinar on why we use cash on cash returns. And of course, I'm gonna go over what that is, and how we derive them. And we're gonna look at some sample returns of the difference it makes when you look at a cash on cash return versus say like a cap rate, or just looking at your return for whatever you initially put down into the property. So we're gonna compare all of that so that you can understand why we use the numbers that we use and how you can accurately run numbers on your own portfolio to help you decide what you want to do with your portfolio. And then next, we're going to go over the different counties in DFW and what growth we are seeing and all of the employment data I was talking about. And then after we do DFW, we'll continue moving through the other markets. As most of you know, the vast majority of my own personal investing is in DFW. And partly that's because I live here, but it's also because I love the security of the DFW market. And so we're gonna talk about a lot of that and who knows, I might throw a little bit of different city comparisons in there between some of the other metros as well, but we'll, we'll see how much time I have when I get to building that. So that'll be November 4th at 2.30. And then for the rest of what we have upcoming, you can go to our YouTube, you can go to our website or wherever is most convenient for you to keep an eye on our upcoming classes. And we will of course continue those flyers coming out to you guys by email. Before I begin, as always, everything that I'm gonna tell you today is based on my best recommendations and guidance based on years of not only 
owning and operating a real estate investment management firm, but also being an investor myself and, of course, just dealing with property management. There's no crystal balls, there's no guarantees, but we will always do our best to guide you and refer you to those that we feel are the best ability for you to get the entire bit of information you need to make educated decisions. And so we are one tool in the toolbox, but there are many other people that we do recommend that you speak with on your investment journey, whether that be insurance agents, CPAs, et cetera. And we can always give those recommendations to you. We will always do our best to answer your questions and to guide you to the right place. And of course, you can always reach out to us if you have specific situations you want to discuss. Uh, due to the size of the class today, we are not gonna discuss anything specific in questions, but I will answer general questions about the laws that went into effect and the ones that I'm covering today. If you're interested in reading a list of all laws that came through and wait till you see how many there were, you can send me an email and I will send you a link to all laws that have gone into effect. So Texas had 666 new laws go into effect on September 1st. It's an astronomical number. And I really wish they just added one more or removed one or maybe consolidated a couple because that number just gives me the heebie-jeebies, but that's the number we got. 666 new laws. They were hard at work. Some of them are extremely important and big changes, and some of them are minor and not really anything that's going to affect us. What I have put together is a focus on the ones that I feel most affect rental property ownership, landlord and property owner rights. This is not all of them, but I do think that it is the most important. So let's get started with general city changes. And I'm not gonna make any commentary on the laws. I'm just gonna tell you how I see them and how I think they will affect the market. Some of them I agree with, some of them I don't, but from a landlord and investment owner perspective, these are good changes. So first, there were penalties put in place for cities reducing police budgets. What we saw in areas like Austin and lots of other areas, if you've been watching the news, is there has been this push to reduce the amount of budget for the police departments or to supplement more of a budget to counselors and people that are not licensed police officers. Again, I'm not going to make commentary on that. What I will tell you is that there is a direct correlation between those movements and crime increases. So what the state did is they stepped up and they said any municipality with more than a quarter million people, if they cut their police budget, HB 1900 now has made a path for the state to financially punish cities by stopping property tax increases and reducing their ability to collect the sales tax revenue. So it's a basically where they can't make more money, which a lot of cities right now are increasing property taxes, and secondary, they cannot continue with their current sales tax revenue. And that's where a lot of, especially the medium-sized cities, get a lot of their revenue. The second thing that they did was a ban on unapproved homeless camping. So HB 1925 identified homeless camping in public places without approval, which means an unapproved area, that's now a misdemeanor crime with a fine of up to $500. The kind of interesting piece of this is they actually wrote into it that cities can't opt out of it. So cities can't decide that they don't wanna take part in this ban. So it's automatic statewide. Now, both of these things are, in my opinion, going to be positive in that it's going to help with beautification of areas and also decreasing crime rates. I think especially if we look at Austin and areas like South Dallas and South Houston, that's where we're gonna see the biggest improvement from this. Now, it's one thing to make it a law. 
And it's another thing to actually go in and enforce that law. So we'll see what happens, but I do think these are positive changes. When I was much younger, we had a mayor here in Dallas who tried to make it illegal to be homeless on the street. And it was very polarized. There was a lot of things that happened. But what I will say is when that stopped, when that law went out of effect and you know that ended, homelessness definitely increased. And so I'll be interested to see what happens as they navigate this. Now, there are a couple things that relate to Texas Business and Commerce Code, and these really talk more about liability. So this new section 59.001 and .052 was added to the code, and it basically creates a civil liability, so responsibility financially, for consequences arising from items pertaining to the construction or repair of a road, highway, or improvement on real property. And I think like the building collapse that we saw in Florida, those types of things are what's driving situations like this. But eventually, I think what's gonna happen is you're gonna see people suing and trying to hold responsibility from a civil perspective for shoddy work or shoddy design plans, shoddy engineering, those types of things. And that's something that happens, especially on the commercial side, a lot more than I think what a lot of people realize. Now, HB 3415, this is one that doesn't make a huge difference, but it is slightly real estate related, so I went ahead and included it. But essentially, in very large counties, those with more than 800,000 people, if you're filing a document in person to affect the real property records, they can now require an ID. Now, you would think that that would have been required in the first place, but it actually was not. They limited this, though, to only counties of more than 800,000 people which it, in the main metros, that's going to affect almost every county. Now, HB 1475, this amended local government code, and it now allows variances based on unnecessary hardship for municipal bonds, uh, for boards. So basically, it is creating a pathway that these cannot create unnecessary hardship. And, you know, what really happens with that, that's going to be yet to be determined. But we'll kind of see how that comes down the pipeline. So SB 30 was a property owner, if they have an instrument that contains a discriminating provision, there is now a process where you can file a motion to request removal of that provision. And again, a lot of these are worded very ambiguously, but it is worded as if it will be removed. So this is something good. I personally haven't really run across this, but I do know it happens. And so especially with some of the older documents and things that are, they haven't ever been updated or changed, that's a really important thing. Now, SB 885, this is property code 13.001. It now shields a lender or buyer's ability to be no longer considered a good faith purchaser by saying a quick claim deed of more than four years cannot affect their good faith or create a notice of an unrecorded lien or deed. So again, this is protecting the consumer. And these are the types of changes that we've seen a lot of this year. HB 900 is that a landlord is now protected from liability for tenants when we do a writ of possession on an eviction. This is huge. So let me give you an example. If we evict a tenant and they don't leave, we do what's called a writ. And we put all their stuff out at the curb. There was not a black and white protection that a tenant could not come back and initiate a liability claim. Now, I haven't had any of those, but they do happen. 
So there is now this amendment pro landlord, as a lot of these are going to be, that that can no longer happen. You are now protected from liability whenever we execute a writ. SB 1783, this is addressing deposit insurance and fees in lieu of deposits. Now I'm gonna take a brief hold here and I'm gonna tell you that we have ceased all new Rhino policies on new listings unless an owner explicitly wants it. There's a few reasons why. This is one of the reasons. There's a lot of law changes coming down from the national level and the state level about deposit insurance, specifically as it pertains to the ability to bill over above and beyond the policy amount in new policies. So I am still offering it on some of my harder to rent apartments that I own, but on the single family side, I have stopped it completely and we will be turning tenants onto traditional deposits off of Rhino. It was great and it still has been great, but what we're finding is some of the things that we are seeing in discussion for new laws that have passed in other states and the claims process, we're just not happy with how that's operating and the changes that we think are going to continue to come. So we're making moves to move away from that now. And the market is hot enough that we really don't need it like we were using it frequently in the height of COVID when nobody had cash and nobody wanted to spend cash. But essentially what SB 1783 says is that a landlord can offer a tenant to pay a fee instead of a deposit, and there are new rules and notice requirements anytime this is used. So the landlord can't use the choice to pay the fee in lieu of a deposit as part of a criteria for a lease application approval. So in theory, you can't or can't now say that we're gonna require three months as a Rhino or deposit insurance policy or your app is rejected they would have to have the option to be able to do a traditional deposit. So it's much of these changes right now are about wording and not necessarily the implementation. And so that's, that's kind of where the gray area is, but it's also where I see potential liabilities coming down the line. That there's so many rules and regulations about how these have to be presented and worded and the addendums and all of those things. I think that in some ways it may be setting, especially individual landlords up to fail. And I'll remind you, for those of you that don't know where Rhino and these things came from, most of it stemmed in New York, where there was a lot of discussion and legislation about the inability of the more impoverished to rent nicer properties in New York because they could not afford the giant upfront fees to move in. And that is where deposit insurance was born, where tenants can pay a monthly fee, kind of like an insurance policy in lieu of doing an upfront large cash deposit. So when people are cash strapped or you're in an area where people don't tend to have enough money to do a full deposit and first month's rent, it can be really beneficial. But on the flip side, if you have a tenant that doesn't want to renew it or doesn't act to renew it and that policy voids or lapses and you have to file a claim at that point during the tenancy, that's when it starts to get really tricky. And especially when they are making specific requirements about how you have to word it and what you have to offer and that they can opt out at any time and all those other criteria that they're now trying to put in place to limit this because it's become so popular. So moving forward on that same topic, the tenant has the option to terminate that fee agreement now at any time and pay a security deposit instead. We have to provide notice to the tenant and the fee agreement, both have to be in writing, which I can't imagine you would ever not do it in writing, but I'm sure there's landlords out there who don't. And then this is a recurring fee of equal amount and payable when rent is due which it is recurring during the initial policy term, but then this begs the question of what about month-to-month -month tenancies, two-month extensions, 
which with a deposit insurance policy that follows the term of the lease, that's where it starts to get sticky. And that's the struggle that we have seen and why we're starting to have pause with that. Now, let's talk about HB 531. There is now a disclosure requirement to notify tenants if the property is in a floodplain or if it's flooded in the last five years. Now, likely the reason this is coming to light is because of what happens in Houston with significant flooding and the fact that tenants have to carry renter's insurance for those situations and there is exclusionary provisions in most leases to negate landlord's liability, at least to a certain extent. It's interesting to me though that there's been a push to talk about floodplain, but that meth exposure and those types of things are still very limited in exposure requirements on a tenant lease. So I think they're kind of focusing on the wrong things, but if I were a tenant moving into a property, I would probably want to know if it had flooded in the last five years too, especially if it's my insurance that has to pick up and carry that expense. HB 2730 is basically there's a lot of changes that happened about eminent domain. And obviously that's happening a lot right now. It's always happened a lot, but there are a significant number of laws that went into effect talking about eminent domain. And I'm going to cover a few of them for you. So this one is talking about that they have to provide a lot more documentation and information to the person they're trying to seek eminent domain from. And then HB 4107, for any pipeline carrier that's trying to use eminent domain, they have to indemnify and pay for damages and also give notice to a property owner anytime they're using their property for a prelim survey. So instead of being able to go on the property and do drilling or whatever that they need to do and then not having to put the property back the way it was or if they damage something, not be liable for that, now they have to do that and indemnify anyone who's injured or anything like that that happens while on the property. So you'd think that would have already been in place, but it actually was not. HB 1153 basically made the Texas Fair Housing Act mirror the Fair Housing Act. SB 721 is another eminent domain, which essentially says when that is in use, they now have to provide the appraisal reports and all documentation used to determine the value to the person they're trying to seek eminent domain from. This is huge because now those offers and when you're negotiating pricing and all of those things, the consumer or the person who is the owner of the property now has to be fully aware of any documentation that that person has who's trying to exercise eminent domain. HB 2533 identifies that when an appraiser is doing what's called an evaluation, as opposed to an appraisal, that they do not have to comply with the universal standard practices, which is like their rules and requirements for how an appraisal is supposed to look. SB 968, this is huge. Counties and cities cannot limit residential and commercial real estate and support services in state of emergencies. So essentially it's going a step beyond labeling those services and real estate in general as essential. So this was one I was very happy to see because we did see a lot of cities try to crack down on things in the middle of COVID. I love HB 2110. It now automatically transfers warranties on air conditioning systems anytime a property changes title or sale. So if you buy a property from somebody and they put in a new AC two years ago, whatever warranty was with that unit now automatically is yours. HB 1560, this is also known as the Sunset Bill. This is transferring the regulation of residential service contracts. That's a home warranty, but that's technically what they're called as a residential service contract. 
it's transferring to TDLR from TREC. So the licensing entity that deals with appraisers and licensees like me are no longer going to be the ones overseeing home warranty policies and home warranty provisions. There's actually a lot more laws and requirements that go into home warranties than anyone realizes. It, if you ever wanna do some reading on that and see what very strict requirements they have to follow and the reporting for issues with them, you can go to Trek's website and see all of that. It's, it's really fascinating. And then HB 1543 says that sellers now have to disclose public improvement districts to sellers, um, to a buyer by the seller, just like we've already been having to disclose municipal utility districts or MUDs. So that has to do with utilities and public improvement districts. HOA laws had a lot of changes this year. There has been a push over the course of the last five to 10 years to really remove a lot of the teeth from the homeowners associations. There are changes that definitely affect landlords and we are very happy to see them, but there's also changes that affect your cost when you sell a property and what the HOAs can and cannot do. So number one, it created a cap for the common fees that are associated with the sale of a property that the HOA has. So there's things like resale certificates and other things that some HOAs were charging just egregious amounts of money for. And what the state has come in and said is there's now a cap on how much you can charge for these fees and the caps are actually quite low. And then for certain delivery items, if you make a second notice requesting those items, and they do not provide it, there are actually penalties that now can go into effect for that, financial penalties. TREC, the licensing entity, is also creating a central database of all Texas HOAs so that you know exactly who an HOA is, who the point of contact is, and that is supposed to be in place by December 1st, 2021. HOAs are now legally required to maintain websites, file dedicatory instruments with the county, solicit bids for items being done, and provide members with timely notice about meetings. So again, it is all about protecting the consumer and empowering the consumer. And that was the theme of many of these law changes this year. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. We saw this push in the last crash, and I think it was mostly driven by the fact there were so many foreclosures not maintaining yards and stuff, and people running to people that probably weren't qualified, that HOA started trying to dictate when you can have a rental property, who you can rent to, having to approve the tenants that went in, and the Association of Realtors and other groups were very big at advocating that this was not lawful, that it was not okay, it was an invasion of rights, and luckily they've won. So HOAs are now barred from requiring access to your lease agreements, prohibiting pool safety enclosures, security measures, or religious displays. This is a huge one. There's been a lot of uproar over people putting things in their yard. It prevents some conflicts of interest with ACC review boards. So what that means is if you're in an HOA and you want to put a new fence up or put a pool up or something that could be in line of sight of someone else, the ACC can come in and tell you, well, no, it doesn't meet this requirement or it doesn't meet this requirement. <clears throat> and so what they've done is they've installed this conflict of interest provision and it just makes the process more fair. Uh, they knew also property owners have protections from negative credit reporting based on delinquencies to HOAs. And this is really designed for those that have like fines and lawn mowing fees and all of that. And then it also improves the process for dispute resolution with HOAs, which happens more than you would think. And that is the bulk of what I think you need to know about the law changes. There are a lot of 
social changes that went into effect. And so if you're interested to kind of hear what's going on in Texas and how it differs from other states, I do recommend you do some reading. There's a lot of things happening as it pertains to uh, business law, city development law, all sorts of things. So if you're interested in reading about the things that don't pertain to real estate, feel free to let me know and I can send you the link to all 666. There's actually a really good link that just does short blurbs of each one. But I think there's been a lot of positive changes this year. I think there's been a lot of landlord protection that's been put in place. There were other business protections put in place that I was very impressed with as well, such as employer limit of liability as it pertains to COVID and exposure. That was something that was a big question when COVID was going on because there really was no there was no black and white as to whether or not employers could be liable if someone got sick or if they were put in a situation where they wound up getting sick or whatever it could be. And so there's been a lot of pro-business policies that have gone in place as well. So for those of you, if you do operate a business in Texas or if you hear if you're here in Texas and you work here, it's a good read because there's a lot of positive changes that did happen. Again, it was all about empowering the consumer, empowering the business, and limiting government oversight of things that they didn't want them to be overseen, which, you know, that's Telltale Texas, right? We're business climate, business friendly, and we also happen to be very conservative with our business and other policies. So if you have any questions, don't hesitate to reach out. I don't have any here right now, but great seeing everybody, and um, hopefully this was helpful information. And we will send a copy of this class out after we finish. So any of you who registered and attended, you'll get a link after the fact. And then it will also be up on our website, YouTube, podcasts, all of that in the next 24 to 48 hours. Otherwise, I hope everyone has a great rest of your week. And I will see you in a couple of weeks for the next class. And just keep an eye out. Like I said, we've got fantastic classes coming up, lots of content to cover. And I'm excited to bring it all to you. Thank you so much. And you guys have a wonderful afternoon.